Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm Drake. And I'm Kyle. And today we are very happy to have Patrick Laflamme on. He is a researcher at the Vision Lab at UBC under Dr. Jim Enns. And today we're going to be talking about AI and how it relates to basically the human brain or how the human brain thinks. Is that right? I <laughs> yeah. butchered it. I butchered it already. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I think it comes down to trying to take advantage of all of the advances that we've seen recently in artificial intelligence and trying to kind of use that to understand how it is that we see and think um, and how our brains achieve the things that we do because a lot of it's really remarkable. Um, the world around us is pretty complicated and yet we can walk around, no problem, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we're slowly starting to be able to build uh, artificial intelligence systems that do the same. Uh, so why not pair them together and see where they behave the same, see where they behave differently and try and learn something from it. Uh, so Patrick, what are you going to instill in us today? What are we going to learn about AI or the human brain? So recently, it's become remarkably easy to make a system that behaves like a human, or at least on the surface appears to behave that way. That's been really hard for a really long time. But if you choose a very specific behavior today, you can build something that will more or less seem to be human on the surface. Mm -hmm. The challenge comes in actually being able to show that that system is doing things like a human on the inside. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that is. And right. So when you yeah, say, right. when you say behave like a human, I'm thinking of like a Roomba doing a really shitty job of cleaning up, <laughs> garbage, <laughs> up your mess. <laughs> like vacuuming a carpet, just like I would if I was vacuuming. We're not talking that rudimentary level, right? We're talking more complex, like we're talking about being able to build things that can make decisions. Right. So we can show an image to a system and it will make the same kind of decisions about what's in that image as people do. Right. We can show it an image of a cat and it's going to say, hey, that's a cat. We're going to show it an image of a dog and it's going to be able to say, hey, that's not a cat. That's a dog. Um, most of the time. Most of the most time. Of the time. <laughs> Those weird cat-dog hybrids. You know, I get confused hybrids. too. You know how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's some pretty big cats out there. Yeah. Pretty small dogs. So that's fair. Yeah. 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 So, that, so you're saying that's almost an easy thing to do now, now that we've progressed uh, our knowledge of the human brain or how AI has uh, improved. That's become easy. But actually verifying if it, it's accurate is the hard part. So it's become relatively easy. All you need to do is have a powerful computer and a lot of data. Okay. Seems Once you have those two enough. things, you build a, you know, a simple system that just tries to map that data to the answers that humans tend to give in response to that data. And bam, you have something that appears on the surface to behave mostly like a human. Right. Wow. So how, but, how does that process, how is that kind of developed? Do you know how that's developed? No, 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 no. So I'm, I'm just I'm just interested really no I know I know yeah. but let's let's follow our script okay sure yeah yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested this is also part of my job I just got to crack the whip <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so Patrick before we get to before we dive too deep into the neurons that control us and the AI that's trying to replicate that uh, or the models that are trying to replicate that, what are some terms or definitions or ideas that we need to be familiar with in order to keep up with this conversation? Sure. Um, some of them include neural networks. Okay. When we talk about neural networks, we there's actually two different kinds. There's the ones in our brains, um, 
And those are made of biological neurons, cells in our brain that talk to each other by electrical signals. Um, and then there's neural networks in the computational world. And it's very important not to confuse the two because they are not the same. Mm -hmm. um, in the computer world, yes, in the 60s, those systems were inspired by neurons, but they're so simplified. It's the equivalent of calling a little, uh, uh, what are they called, uh, hot wheel? It's like looking at a Hot Wheels and saying, that's a Tesla. <laughs> it just isn't, you know? Early so, model. <laughs> early model, yeah. <laughs> Artist rendition. Yeah. <laughs> Great, okay. Um, now, so we've got neural network. Yeah. Um, two different well, neural networks. Why, different they, why are they named the exact same thing? <laughs> it, it really comes back to this fact that uh, in the 60s, it was these computational neural networks were inspired by right. the brain. Um, they're not they're not a super accurate model of the neur neurons in our brain um, nor is the way that they communicate with each other in the computational world um, but it seems as though there are certain cases where they behave similarly and that's what we try and leverage here okay or Great. take advantage of here so I have a I have a question that's burning to be asked on that but I will shelve it momentarily because <laughs> I think there's a couple other definitions that we should get to. Um, ones that I think we probably addressed previously on the show, but that we'll, we'll reintroduce and re recover for anybody joining us now. Mm -hmm. um, one of them that we talked about before we started recording was the attentional blink. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What is the attentional blink? How does it work? Easier shown than, than explained. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> So the way that it generally is, it appears in the lab is we show people what's called a rapid serial visual presentation. This is a really long <laughs> term to literally just mean that we're just showing a bunch of things to you really quickly one at a time. Fair enough. So we yeah. show you a whole bunch of digits. It could be a one, could be a nine, followed by a four. And we just keep on doing this. And somewhere in there, we hide a letter. And the person's job is to f find that letter, notice it, and remember what letter it is. Then half the time, there's another letter within a trial. So there's another let letter later on that appears after some numbers appear in between. Um, and the participants in the, these experiments have two jobs. First, they need to remember what the le first letter was. And then they need to remember whether or not the second letter appeared at all. Okay. So it's pretty straightforward. And not actually identify the second letter? Second letter doesn't really matter. Okay. Turns out that if these two letters appear really close together, so like one right after the other, or one followed by a couple letters, um, a couple numbers, what we find is that people don't experience seeing the second letter at all. They just are completely unable to recognize. Their performance tanks, if you ask them, they don't report seeing it. They say, I never saw it. There was no second letter in this trial. Right. Even though there definitely was. You know it because the experimenter built this <laughs> yeah. sequence, right? We know. <laughs> it's fixed, but yeah. the participant just doesn't see it. Right. Um, and so this is really interesting because it kind of shows how we feel like we see everything. We feel like we experience everything, but we don't. So, and that's called, sorry, and that's called attentional blink. And that's called the attentional blink. That's a phenomenal yeah. name for that phenomenon right like, it's, it, like, it's, it's, it's an amazing name for the phenomenon not a phenomenal phenomenon yeah. <laughs> but like it's a beautiful way of putting it because that attentional blink like you didn't see it your attention 
blinked or it it wavered for a moment exactly and it was it's yeah. a certain time frame that really is often significant where where it's if it's within a certain time frame like you said that's where you miss it in the, yeah exactly in the same way that if you know somebody blows a puff of air in your eye yeah. your eyes close for a fraction of a second yeah. and you can't see anything in that time because your eyes are closed right um you know you could kind of think of it that this is your like inside the brain the equivalent of blinking your eyes in yeah. terms of paying attention. don't blink or you miss it yeah that's essentially <laughs> what it boils down to yeah. yeah but the blinking is literally just paying attention <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um so with attentional blink uh, when you're when you're measuring this phenomenon, how many uh, words or letters are they seeing in a trial? Like when you when you describe this, I think of mm-hmm. how could you f- forget this thing, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's one of those phenomenons that in psychology I find it happens a lot where people think, oh, that would never happen to me if I was in that situation. But we've been shown and yet, true, yeah. <laughs> true, <laughs> true, <laughs> time after yeah, time, it always <laughs> happens that people do make those mistakes. Or those those uh, have those lapses in intention. So how many like what's what's an average trial look like? Like what do, what is a participant going to be seeing when they go into these things? So they're going to see a whole bunch of numbers that just appear one after the other. They flash in the middle of the screen. It it feels like you know those flip books. Yes. It feels like somebody had taken one of those flip books and written a number on every page. Right. And then flipped through it. Okay. So you can, you know, you, you do see individual numbers yeah. and imagine that one of these pages, instead of writing a number, they wrote a letter Yeah. and you flip through and yeah, sure enough, you can identify the letter. So it's rapid, very rapid, but not yeah. rapid enough that you wouldn't be able to process what you're seeing. No. So right. you, you can see I- individual numbers mm-hmm. and, but, but it, it is quite fast. So we're talking about, that's the problem when we talk about processing, because it's like, it's very fast and you can distinguish between each number or item shown. But what becomes really interesting is when we give you that target image, that yeah. target letter, your processing suddenly is like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? Yeah, What's slow going down, on? slow down. I yeah, can't. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what results in you blinking mm-hmm. yeah. metaphorically and missing that next target that immediately follows or follows exactly. very shortly after. Mm-hmm. So like, that's one of the distinctions that I think is really fascinating that people don't always make is like processing has two different connotations depending on where you're looking in the brain. I mean, perceiving and processing are two different things, right? Yes. Like two different, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, so as an example, if, if somebody went through this flip book, right, and showed you the flip book with all the numbers and letters and you asked, could you see all the numbers and letters? People are going to say, yeah. You know, because it's like, oh, yeah, I could see numbers and letters. I mean, she, of course. <laughs> add them up. Yeah, add them up. Yeah, exactly. And then you say, yeah, but which did you see? Yeah. And suddenly people aren't able to specify. Right. So it's it's interesting because it's not... The experience differs from what's actually being processed, right? Totally. So yeah. like in, in cognitive psychology, people often... Participants often complain that the experiments are really boring. <laughs> They're, they're brutally boring. And you That's know what? It's true. <laughs> it's true. They're boring. But they're boring for a reason. Because we are trying to build experiments that test very specific, very sort of low-level behaviors, yeah. right? Or very low-level processing units. So, Patrick, whenever we're talking about attention, um, there's two things as a cognitive psychologist we need to be aware of bottom-up versus top-down processing. Can you give us a little bit of a, 
uh, Cole's notes on what those two different things are? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start the explanation by saying that it sounds like it's one or the other. It's looking more and more like it's both. Um, so keep that in mind as I'm kind of explaining what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It's not a dichotomy. There's kind of an ebb and flow between them. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like an ebb and flow between them. It's, it's they're kind of both working at the same time. Right. It's the equivalent of pedaling with both legs at the same time. Mm -hmm. Are you right. pedaling with your left leg? Yeah. Are you pedaling with your right leg? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, so... Except I only pedal with my left leg. <laughs> <laughs> I have a t tiny I'd right leg. I'd love to see that. <laughs> I'd love to see that. <laughs> I'd be impressed. <laughs> anyway, continue. It's a great analogy. It, it led in really well. So bottom-up processing is when the brain takes incoming information, say what you see, uh, and it tries to make decisions about what's around you so it takes you know the light that's coming in and hitting your eyes and then it's converting that into the decision of that's a table that's a bike um taking the sounds that you hear and saying that's a car driving by outside that's a beer can that just opened right. you know things like that um so it's all about taking the low level information the information that's coming in from the outside and then trying to kind of twist it and mold it into something that you can then decide what's meaningful. Right. Top down is about more or less what you're expecting. So this is saying, you know, I'm here, I'm recording something. There tends to be a beer or two involved. <laughs> that can was probably a beer. Right. Or I was walking into the house today. I had to have driven here. So there's a road nearby. So those sounds I'm hearing, it's probably not a waterfall. It's probably cars driving by. Mm -hmm. Those aren't things that I can tell necessarily just by listening to the sound, but it's information that my brain is able to use in order to make a decision. And so after I explain it, it kind of makes sense why it's both, right? I mean, yeah. you need to know information about kind of what's around you based off of the low level sound or uh, light hitting your eye in order to decide what's there. But there's also a lot of information that you already know that's kind of already in your brain that could help make that decision and help drive that decision. How do you model that when you don't really, we're totally. not too sure how humans actually do it in, the, in their brains? The way that we often begin to tackle that problem is by trying to take a small enough slice of the pie that the rest of the, you know, the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. Right. We try and focus on something very specific because it's difficult to really capture everything, right? I mean, imagine trying to describe something that you saw recently. You can describe bits of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if you, if you picked something very specific, if you picked, you know, um, what you were wearing in that memory, you might be able to give a very specific and, you know, descriptive um, sort of summary of what it was like. Mm -hmm. But trying to describe everything... Yeah. is impossible. There's just too much to describe, you know? Yeah. Like and it, it's the same yeah. thing in these models. So where are we, where are you leading us today then, I guess? With all this, all this uncertainty, <laughs> um, how do you, how do you go about this? Like what is the, what is the literature doing now to kind of, I guess, breach the gap between what, how humans think and how we can model the way a human thinks? So, the answer comes in a really incredible um, 
advancement in artificial intelligence that happened in 2012. Um, some people refer to this guy as the grandfather of neural networks. His name is Jeff Hinton. Um, and he and his colleagues came up with a model um, that is able to look at a given image and classify it into one of 1,000 possible objects. This is something that was previously very difficult, and it still is, but it's a lot easier than it used to be using these new neural networks. It's a special type of neural network, and we don't really need to worry about why it's different from other neural networks, but the important piece is that what you can do with these is you can show an image to this neural network, and you show it what it needs to say at the end what class is the the images of based off of a human's opinion and the the neural network does is it learns how to map that image or images like it to that response and there's all sorts of really interesting literature that shows you that in, in fact it doesn't matter if it's an image or a sound etc if there's some kind of input that can be reliably mapped to an output then a neural network should be able to connect the two. Right. So the whole idea is that if a human can do it, a neural network should be able to do it too. Right. And it's just a matter of having enough data that's reliably labeled. Right. So if we can accurately create the neural network, computer, the computer neural network, we ought to be able to replicate what's happening in our brain so that's kind of the the initial thought right yeah. is yeah. wow we, we we can build something that behaves like people yeah. but the challenge is that how do we know that the inside of that is doing it the same way that we do right i mean it's mapping one thing to another but is it doing it how we do it right yeah is that how I the brain know. works like is it <laughs> yeah it's one-to-one -one kind of situation where you hear this and you relate to this does it work that way? Um, well, so I may I may have misspoken. Yeah. It's it's more about generalization, right? So you show it specific Does images. This generalize to this. So, but it learns to generalize and say that you know images of fluffy things that have pointy ears, mm -hmm. and you know, is a dog's bark from one one dog to the other? Does it all translate to a dog? Exactly. Yeah. And so it, you, with enough training and enough data. Um, and enough luck, you can build a neural network that do, that matches the dog's bark generally mm -hmm. to the label of dog's bark. So it, you show it a dog's bark. You could even record one with your phone. Yeah. And then the neural network can listen to that and say, oh, it's a dog barking. Yep. 100% right. sure. Yep. So here's a question for you, because this is something that's always plagued me in classes when we're talking about neural networks. Um, I guess there are two questions. But the first is... When we hear a dog barking, and a, I'll be a devil's advocate, when we hear a dog barking, we're almost 99% sure it is a dog barking, right? But in what way do neural networks account for error in in what we hear? So my, my hearing isn't perfect, yours isn't, Drake's isn't, but certainly that must be taken into account when we're creating a neural network. If we're trying to mimic... A brain right like we we must be taking into account the fact that brains make mistakes so we take into account the fact that 
there is some unknown about the actual signal, right? Okay. So in the same way that I might hear kind of a, a whooshy sound and think either that's a car or it could be a waterfall, right? right? And they might sound very similarly. And if I, you know, under the right circumstances, a car might sound like a waterfall and a, or a waterfall, you know, for a split second might sound like a car. And so in the same way that our brains, once the signal's inside of our brain, it's indistinguishable. You don't know how what part of that is error and what part of that isn't. Yeah. Right. The neural network kind of treats it the same. And it does so by spitting out what's called kind of um, logits, but we won't worry about that. <laughs> Basically, what it's doing is it's spitting out kind of its confidence in any given classification, any given class. So you give it a thousand possible things that it could say, that it could identify. It's going to spit out a thousand different numbers each of them between zero and one. Those numbers tell you out of one, how confident are you that this specific object is present in the image? And they all add to one. So the neural network says, well, it's one of these thousand. Yeah. I know because you've only ever showed me these thousand objects. And so, you know, I have to choose between one of those thousand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's such a fascinating, like every... Every time I've had this come up in class, it's just absolutely blown my mind. It's so, so it's interesting. I mean, the way that you're talking about it's starting to make me think about uh, the way that we, the way that we perceive robots or AI in the sense that they need to be perfect, but they don't. They're trying to replicate humans who are imperfect by nature. We might not get it all right every time. Is that so, correct? Yes. Okay. If you talk to somebody who specifies or specializes in like artificial intelligence research, specifically like we want to build a system that is artificially intelligent, they're going to say that we're not really worried about reproducing humans. You know, we just want to build something that thinks smartly. Right. <laughs> Personally, I'm like, well, what does that mean? And who's making that decision? It's us. So, you know, who it's, is smart? So we're not really trying to replicate humans. We're just trying to, we're just trying to replicate a certain subset of humans yeah. who like think smartly. Well, yeah. And, and so, I mean, it gets around this whole issue of, yeah, but you're not making it human. And, yeah. you know, yeah. some would argue that neural networks are not human. And I would agree that a neural network is not a human. Um, but under certain circumstances, they might behave somewhat like a human. Yeah. Um, and that's what I find interesting is how do we identify when it's doing something like a human? I mean, currently it's a popular topic right now is like the uh, self-driving cars. I mean, I think this might be something that's a relatable topic in the sense that everybody's really worried about self-driving cars because they're like, well, what if they hurt people? What if they get in accidents? Human well, they just did. Yeah, and they just did recently. There was a, yep. there was a, where a was it? Struck in Tempe, Arizona. Yeah, mm -hmm. in Arizona, and killed. Yeah. Yeah. And so this may lead to a significant. And this might be an issue, like going forward for uh, self-driving cars. But at the same time, how many accidents occur Are caused by people? Caused by people, right? Yeah. So, 100%. and and I've heard the debate that you want to have self-driving cars that are in getting in less accidents than humans do. And that's the that's the standard that we that they should be looking for, not just mm -hmm. a perfect record. Like you can't have. I I mean, ideally you would have a perfect, uh, a perfect world where robots are perfect and nothing, nothing, no issues would ever occur. But that's not, that's not how the world works. But once we get there, 
then what? Yeah. <laughs> well, so here's the question. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, once we get there, is that really human? Yeah. So are we actually are we actually replicating the human experience by creating a perfect entity? Well, so and that's that's why the AI, like the pure AI researchers, will say we're not interested in building a human-like system. We just want to build something that makes good decisions. Yeah. And so they get around that whole issue. They say we're we're just gonna <laughs> we see that philosophical issue and we're just gonna walk around it. Mm-hmm. We're not gonna touch it. We're we're gonna you know shove a stick in it and yeah. just make sure that we never get any closer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's the imperfections that we see today in, you know, AI implementations might be useful in understanding how we think and how we process the world around us. And so essentially that's the work that we're going to be talking about today, but yeah. you're interested in, right, is mm-hmm. replicating a human in a sense, not so trying it's not, to... it's not replicating a human because I think that we're a long way from doing that. Right. But I think what we can do is we can look at the artificially intelligent systems that are built today or what we call today artificial intelligence. And we can understand where it behaves human-like, where it doesn't behave human-like, and maybe that'll tell us a a little bit more about what it means to be human, right? right? Because we can now get very specific about specific behaviors and how, how we might differ from other things, other systems that have learned to solve the same problems we do. Right. Of, okay, I have a bunch of light in front of me. Well, what do I see? Yeah. You know, or, yeah. oh, I, there's a whole bunch of vibrations hitting my eardrum. Mm. What do I hear? And I think that's leading back to the point they made earlier was that you really do have to be, be very, very narrow in the way that you're researching this or that you're, things that you're looking at, like the tasks of looking at numbers repetitively, like a flip book, and then having, say, a letter or two letters, right? You have to be very specific if you're wanting to find any differences or, or relate anything. If you look too broad, uh, it's going to be very hard to tell which one's which or what, what you're looking at. Is that correct? Totally. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's so many things that a person can do Yeah. that if we try and describe it all, we're going to miss something. The variability and the, and the, the amount of uh, things you have to control for uh, based on human error <laughs> or human thinking <laughs> is unbelievable, right? Totally. Every, every yeah. research area is always thinking of, well, what else could be telling this story, right? Yeah. So, I mean... In physics, they like to run experiments where everything is really controlled. You know, they know every little thing about a particle. They know, you know, every little detail. They have it all down to a science so that every time they start an experiment, that particle that they're using in their experiment is exactly the same in every respect as the one that they used before. We don't have that luxury in psychology. Somebody walks into a, you know, a lab ready to run an experiment Think of how much that they've experienced in life. You know, imagine they're 25. They have 25 years of experience that differs at its very core from anybody else on the planet. Yeah. They're absolutely unique in, in what they've experienced. Exactly. Yeah. So how, you know... How do you equate that? To try and describe everything would require us to describe everything, not just that will happen, but has happened to a person. Yeah. And... You know, not even I can describe everything that's happened to me over my life. And I'll, de- I'll doubt that I could find anyone on the planet, planet that could, no. you know? So I think it's, it's important that we, that we limit the, the range of things that we try and describe one at a time. Absolutely. And maybe at some point we'll be ready to put them together. Um, yeah, that's the dream. I mean, that's, I think yeah. that's the dream to, that we're trying to lead towards, right? So mm-hmm. this, this always comes back to me. Um, and it's something I'm thinking a lot about as I'm, 
preparing to, to write and then defend my thesis. There's no perfect experiment, right? Yeah. And so you will never have all the variables that you need measured in order to adequately actually measure what you're looking at, right? Like your, yeah. your dependent variable <laughs> is always going to have some degree of error because you can't measure everything that goes into it. And if you could, then we're all done here. Yeah. Yeah. Like we've described everything. Yep. We can pack it up and Wrap go home. Wrap it up. Yeah. 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 We got to look for another, another job. Right? <laughs> yeah. Job all done. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of brings me to that last piece that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, what's called predictive coding. Um, and this idea is um, essentially that our brain is trying to predict things all the time. It's, you know, as we're having this conversation, your brain's trying to predict what I'm going to say. And my like brain is trying to, to predict what sandwich. I'm going to say. And sometimes yeah. it's easier than others. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's basically the way this works is I've got myself twisted around here. <laughs> if we had a brain that did no prediction whatsoever, it just passively listened, then we'd all be zombies, for lack of a better term. Yeah, we things, would just react to what's going coming at us. Yeah. And we'd never be able to form any long-term plans. We'd never be able to do anything like that. You wouldn't be able right? to survive, right? Because you can't predict outcomes of events. Like, or like totally. what's, what's like the stimulus you're consuming, you cannot really interpret effectively. Yeah. So, so when we kind of tie this to the top-down versus... Or to, uh, yeah, top-down versus bottom-up. Yeah. Um, basically... The top down is basically trying to predict what the bottom up is going to say next. So we can think of this like the, the higher part of our brains that are higher is the wrong word. The, the, the more abstract parts of our brains, the parts that are worried about what's for dinner. Um, what is that thing that I'm seeing? Um, you know, is that thing going to eat me? Those are constantly trying to predict down at the lower levels. The things that are saying, well, What's, you know, what's the basic shape of these things? Right. What, you know, what is the texture of that thing that I see? Yeah. It's constantly trying to predict what's going to happen there next. And so the idea is basically that by trying to predict what's going to happen next, it can detect when things aren't what you, what it expected. Right. Um, yeah. Imagine we had, I'm going to come back to this string idea. Okay. Imagine we had a piece of rope and this rope you know, your younger brother was mischievous and painted it so that it looked like a snake, uh, a snake, a snake. <laughs> okay. So imagine it looked like a snake. Yeah. Um, when you first see it, visually, it looks just like a snake. Yeah. So from a bottom up perspective, your brain's freaking out thinking, holy crap, that's a rattlesnake. You know, I'm, I'm about to die. This is it. You know, goodbye, sweet world. Um, <laughs> but Hello, darkness, my... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but at the same time, right, there are certain behaviors that a snake follows that a rope wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So while our bottom-up's freaking out, saying, snake, 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 you're going to die, our top-down might be saying, well, hold on. Snakes tend to writhe. They tend to move. So we're going to predict that this, you know, our snake is going to be moving a little bit and it's going to go back and check with this, with these low levels. It's going to say, well, has the snake moved? Right. If it has, then holy crap, we're going to die. This is it. Yeah. But if it hasn't, then maybe there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. And so if you stare at a rope that's painted like a snake for a couple of seconds, 
you'll very quickly dismiss it as, oh, that's just, you know, that's my little brother up to it again, you know? But at that very moment where you first see it, the bottom-up processing kind of says, oh, that's a snake. Right. That's the initial reaction. And then the predictive coding um, piece is trying to basically predict what's going to happen next. And it's kind of a confirmatory piece. It's kind of confirming the guesses that your brain is making and just checking to see whether what you expect to see, given the conclusions that you've drawn, are actually happening. Whenever you're, whenever you're using the analogy of the, of the snake and the rope, it's, I think it's perfect. The way, you could treat a cat's reaction to a cucumber as a bottom-up process. Totally. Yeah. Right? Where, they, where they, see, they, they associate cucumbers as snakes, so it's automatic a, a predator, so mm-hmm. then they jump that's a bottom-up process, but they're not really able to use a top-down process where, oh, actually, well, let's hold on a second. This might just be a cucumber I'm staring at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But humans have that kind of extra layer where they're, there's a lot of uh, feedback between the two systems. And I think this leads into the mm-hmm. point that you're like, they're not two separate systems here. Like, it's not a, either a bottom-up or a top-down. It, it could it's, be... It's all kind of one big right. mashed potato, you yeah. know? Like, it's it's all just one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, yeah. But you can kind of separate it into, into these two ideas. Yeah. One of them is kind of saying, okay, well, is this actually what's going on? Mm-hmm. And the other side saying, holy crap, a snake, holy crap, a snake. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, as it iterates, it's like, oh, it's probably not a snake. Like, is it moving like a snake? And the guy's like, no. The bottom side is like, no, <laughs> it's not really moving like a, like a snake, but it looks like one, so you should be re- really freaking out. And then the top, bo- top down responds, oh, well, it still hasn't moved like a snake. It's probably a rope. Yeah. You know, you know how your little brother is. <laughs> um, and so, you know, yeah, I think it's kind of like this iterative circular pattern yeah. of kind of talking back and forth. Um, and that's at essence, at its essence, kind of what the predictive coding says. Cool. It's saying that, you know, it's, it's this constant, constant conversation in your head for lack of a better term. Right. And that, and uh, that's, that's a perfect way of saying of, of modeling, essentially what you guys are doing is modeling that kind of thinking saying bottom up first then top down to to kind of confirm that and then work in a kind of a loop trying to figure out what what's actually to be what what you're predicting yeah Yeah. so so and the the tough part i mean we can start talking about a little bit about the background literature the tough part to date is that most of our neural network models they're all just doing the bottom up they're all just you go from the image and it kind of becomes more and more abstract until suddenly it decides that it's a cat or it's not a cat. But there's never any guess and check, at least in terms of the models that have been compared to humans. There's been very little work. There's there's a little bit that deals with this whole predictive coding piece. But the the bulk of it just kind of is looking at this bottom-up process. And so we end up studying the first, you know, few hundred milliseconds, less than that, few, you know, tens of milliseconds of exposure to an image. And that's what we look at, is how, how the brain reacts to those few few milliseconds. Yeah. But that's not the full experience. Mm-hmm. And so over the past year or so, um, maybe two, um, things have slowly been progressing to the point where we can start to talk about the, the predictive coding piece. Right. Um, and that's what I find really interesting, is um, trying to understand how our brain is doing this constant talk back and how, you know, it matters just as much what you saw 10 minutes ago or you know 30 seconds ago as it does what you're seeing now. Yeah. Both of those influence what you experience at the moment. Yeah, but- so I mean, let's jump into what you're actually doing then. 
so what has been done previously within the last you said it's been recent last few years uh in this work and then what are you leading what are you leading to in your work Mm -hmm. so uh, in the past four years there's been a lot of really interesting work that's looking at how the brain represents objects and we don't need to worry too much about how we measure that but we can get a sense of how our brain parts of our brain are representing a wide array of things so we show somebody a house versus a face versus a cat versus a cactus versus a horse um and we we can get a sense of how our brain is categorizing and representing all of those different stimuli in our brain uh particularly in the parts that that uh process vision right uh and then what we can do is we can do the same thing with these neural networks these artificial neural networks we can go and take the computational model show it the same images that we showed the people and look at how it's representing all of these things and kind of put it out out on a spectrum and In 2014, there was a group of people who showed that um, the work done by Jeff Hinton, the the guy that I talked about, um, that same network actually represents images very similarly to the human brain at the abstract level. When it comes to actually categorizing things, um, the human brain categorizes these things very similarly in the way that the neurons fire, as do these computational models. Right. Um, and over time, there's been more and more support for this. So kind of at the neural representation level, um, there's, there's a similarity. There's, there's parallels to be drawn. Right. Between, so yeah. here's a question for you. Just, uh, it's something that's always puzzled me and maybe you can answer it. Um, when you say it's, it's mirrored or it's modeled, uh, you know, neural activity, how do they know that? Are they taking little electrodes and sticking them on? your neurons and then seeing how they fire and then great question so in some cases yes but it's not with people it's with monkeys okay um and that i don't really love that part (laughs) of it um i find the papers interesting um but with people we don't really want to shove things in the brains um for very obvious reasons and so instead what we do is we measure the brain activity using what's called fMRI or functional magnetic resonance imaging. Um, if you don't know what that is, please tune into our fourth episode with Yvette Gravelin where yep. we discuss fMRIs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, we, we could, we could we talk all night about that. We don't need yeah. more definitions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this episode. Um, and so that's, that's often how we measure kind of the brain, yeah. um, uh, brain activation Mm. Um, there's there's other ways too uh, but the important piece is that we measure it indirectly we're kind of guesstimating at how the brain um is really representing the the objects based off of what we measure from the outside and it's kind of the opposite in terms of the computational model because we built it so we, we can go and pick things apart we can you know pull at the strings we can you know see what happens and so we have all the detail for this computational model but we don't necessarily have all that detail with humans. Right. Um, and that's, that's one of the challenges. They've used a lot of these techniques to try and measure how the brain represents these images so that when we go and compare it to the neural networks or the, sorry, to the computational models, um, we can make some direct comparisons and we can decide how much these two systems are actually behaving similarly inside the brain. Um, 
but there's been a lot less work at looking at how they actually behave similarly in terms of how they behave, right? Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the final decisions that they're making. And uh, on the surface, you might think, wow, like that's a really deep question. But remember that when we train these, when we, when we build these computational models, what we do is we actually train it, we, we show it that it needs to associate some images with a specific output. And that output's been labeled by humans. So basically we've built something that we acts like it. humans. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the interesting part is actually going in and finding cases where we can find behavior that isn't necessarily what we taught it, but it's kind of like a byproduct of right. what we taught it. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can go and sort of investigate that um, and see how th that byproduct is similar to how humans behave in the, under those conditions. Right. So in the case of... Um, uh, in, in the case of a master's thesis work, what we did is we, we went and we looked at how people were able to identify um, images that are just pure noise, like TV static. They were able to go and identify TV static that actually ends up being more like a specific target that they're looking for mm -hmm. than others. They're like super sensitive. So it's almost like there's accidental relationships were you looking for an x or something in yeah the so they were looking yeah. for like an x in in a noise yeah so it just looked like a normal x yeah. you turn but, the you should turn the tv on where there's white noise and you're just showing a bunch of pictures still frames of that exactly looking for is there an x in the background exactly yeah, yeah. and i'm sure everybody's had the experience when they look at noise on a tv and they see a picture and they yeah, see yeah, something yeah, yeah. right just for a yeah. flat fraction of a second yeah. it's like Oh, that was my horse, or you know, yeah. who knows? Same. I think you uh, use the analogy. Of, I don't Jesus. have a horse. Where, like, Jesus. where did that come yeah. from? Yeah, Patrick <laughs> actually is, lives on a ranch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> surprise. <laughs> yeah. I think I think you use the example. I, I I remember watching this presentation. I think you use the example of like seeing something in the clouds. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like you, you're like, oh, that's clearly a turtle in the clouds. Like, yeah. do you not see that turtle? And someone's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, and then you have to look at your look at it a million times, but then you can try to get that eventually, but. Every, every person is processing things differently. Totally, Especially yeah. within the white noise. Yeah. yeah. Um, but nonetheless, we can, we can all agree that there are certain clouds that definitely look like a turtle. Mm -hmm. Like everybody mm -hmm. agrees. So there's, there's some amount of what we call signal there. Yeah. And it turns out that neural networks actually detect the, the signal much in the same way that people do. Um, even when there's actually no X present. It's all just kind of TV static. There's yeah. nobody put anything anywhere. It's all just random chance mm. it's all um, snow it's all snow yeah and yet these neural networks and these people tend generally to agree about which ones are more target more exy more exy <laughs> yeah yeah um and more that we can more than we can predict with simpler models yeah. that you know are not nearly as good at predicting human behavior yeah so um, so patrick where can people expect to see expect to see that kind of research impact their lives more and more as we move into the internet age as we've moved into the internet age more and more there are artificial intelligence systems running or are involved in every part of our lives you know um you're typing on your phone sending a message well it turns out that there's actually a neural network predicting you know when it predicts what the next word is yeah. Yeah. turns out that's a neural network predicting what you're going to say next um when you're talking to your google home or your alexa turns out 
that's a neural network interpreting what you have to say. Um, when you go and you do a Google image search, the reason that Google knows what's in each image, that's a neural network. Hmm. Um, and in those cases, it's relatively innocuous, right? If there's a mistake, if Google, if, if Google Home thinks that you said pizza instead of pasta, no big deal, right? You shrug it off. But what if we end up using artificial intelligence systems to drive cars? There, are, there might be some really weird behaviors in these artificial intelligence systems that we need to identify because somebody might be able to take advantage of those weird behaviors and do something that's less than savory, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So by understanding how these artificial intelligence systems behave like people, A, we can identify when you know, they both behave weirdly um, and that would be nothing new, but it's good to know, right? Um, both our cars and we see weird things in clouds, you know, maybe, maybe that's good to know. Yeah. But also it's important to know when we diverge because it's really easy as people to just say, oh, it, it behaves like us. It drives a car. I drive a car. Computers like me. That's simple. But what if it's, what if there are important ways that they're, they behave differently? Yeah. What if there are specific ways that a neural network might do something that we consider completely unexpected? Yeah. Um, might look at a white truck and say that white truck is a cloud that wouldn't be good and that's actually happened right yeah um and by understanding when those things happen uh, we can start to avoid those types of situations in the future right so i mean i think i think that was a phenomenal introduction to the work that you're doing so i think we can head into our brain break now uh, and I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be a really fun uh, mis misconceptions uh, segment. And there's going to be a lot of cool co topics that are going to come up about um, when AI can go too far. Is AI, actually, AI going to kill us? Is Skynet confirmed? <laughs> confirmed. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know yet. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit. With that, we, uh, we head into our brain break and we'll see you on the other side. Watch 
keep getting there. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back. You just listened to Mr. Roboto by The Sticks. Uh, I'm still here, in case you were wondering. Uh, and I'm joined here by Drake and Kyle. Right on. Thanks for the introduction, Patrick. That was very smooth. <laughs> Let's dive straight into some myths and misconceptions about AI, about neural networks. Um, what's a myth that we want to bust here? So I kind of alluded a little bit to this idea in the first half. Um, there's often this idea that neural networks, computational neural networks, are si- just simulated brains. We're just They're inspired by the brain. They're basically just taking a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of simulated neurons, connecting them, and basically building a brain inside of a computer. Right. That's not the case. Mm. Um, this is these these artificial neural networks are super super simplified. Um, the analogy that I used in the first half uh, was that it's the equivalent of comparing a Hot Wheels to a Tesla. You know, nobody would look at a Hot Wheels and say that's a Tesla. And yet, they have some similarities. Yeah. Um, one is definitely inspired by the other, um, but they're not the same. And you can't really compare them in any other way than to say that they have wheels. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so it's so easy to to say that they're the same and that they have a lot of um, that they have a lot of similarities, which is true. I mean, one of them was inspired by the other in the 1960s but our understanding of the brain and of neurons and of how you know biology in general works has come so far since the 1960s um that you know there's really almost no comparison at the low level anymore it reminds me of like the idea people like like to say the brain is like the computer in the body yeah there's there are similarities yeah there are certain certain things that the two share Mm. um in the same way that a hot wheel has wheels and a (laughs) tesla has wheels i mean it doesn't make them fundamentally the same but i mean that's another really interesting misconception though um people always say that the brain is kind of the computer of of the body Mm. um but computers are so linear they're so one thing after another Mm. um and brains just aren't like that you know, like we have we have billions of neurons and each of them can fire at any time. They can have all fire at the same time if you want. That's called a seizure. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> uh, but but they can. Right. Yeah. Um, with a computer, it can't do everything all at the same time. It's, yeah. it's what's called serial. It's one thing after another. Mm-hmm. Um, but the brain is parallel. It's just inherently parallel. Um and so that's that's something to think about a little bit that it, this analogy kind of runs into problems both ways yeah. um the neural networks that we build in the computers are not like the neural networks that exist in the brain and the idea of trying to think of the brain like a computer is not right either yeah um but we can use certain aspects of the similarities we can use the fact that they both have wheels so to speak yeah. Um, we can use that fact that they share certain things to try and understand more about both systems. So would it be fair to say that uh, the brain kind of has a dynamic number of processors in that we can, like if we're, if we're making a direct comparison to computers where a computer has 
two processors or four processors or god forbid you still have a laptop with one processor the the brain has the ability to kind of say okay i'm going to process these tasks these tasks these tasks and to infinitum like or is that is that a misconception like is that something but they'd still be running the same task the problem so a processor you can take software that's built to do a specific thing and you can pass it through the processor then you can take totally different software made by by somebody totally totally different that didn't even know that the the first software existed and you can pass it through the same processor and the processor will just do its thing and it'll just run yeah you know there's exceptions to that but large you know large picture that's how it works Mm -hmm. in the brain you can't just you know this isn't the matrix you can't just plug something into the back of your head and then suddenly you're you know like the next kung fu master everything you know like you can think of it in the sense that maybe we do have individual small little units called neurons that are kind of like a processor but that processor specializes in a very specific thing so that processor becomes very sensitive to a very specific state in a very specific context right right processors are a lot more flexible um so the analogy of one processor versus one chunk of brain isn't quite doable because of the fact that one specific part of the brain or one specific group of neurons tend to specialize in a specific type of computation but a processor can do anything right you can say i want to add one plus one done processor can do it i want to play a video game done processor can do it i want to um you know write my next novel using a using word microsoft word done processor can do it but the brain can do none of those things but it can control your arm right right so uh, so it's it's kind of you can make the analogy in, in the sense that they're both trying to take a bunch of information and do things with it but that's about where the analogy stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that's I think that's a good way of looking at it because I think I mean it has been perpetuated throughout my whole life where it's like yeah, what is what is your brain? Oh, it's the computer. It it just computes things and it's that simple. But there's a lot more going on. Like you said, each part of the each part of the brain has a unique function and has a specialty that it can really excel at and, and contribute to the way that you perceive the world, the way that you react to things, this top down and bottom up processing. It's all, totally. it's all associated with these different parts of the brain. And if there's damage to the different parts of the brain, you're going to see very unique differences mm-hmm. based on where that damage is. If you see if, I mean, to put it bluntly, if there's damage to a computer, the, ca- the computer is probably going to just gonna not work. Yeah, if the processor stops working, yeah. it's not just going to build a new processor. No, the, the computer's done. <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah. Game over. Yeah. You know? and, and you mentioned neuroplasticity as being the thing that really drew you in uh, to to this research. Uh, there's no neuroplasticity, <laughs> neuroplasticity in a sense for a computer. The computer's totally. It's going to just it's toast it's yeah. done yeah so it's, it's like a neuron can reprogram itself yeah. right and it can do something new but it specializes in that new thing now yeah and it can't do the old thing anymore mm-hmm. so it's kind of like it's it's a processor with a one-track mind yeah it does one thing real well yeah um it can contribute to other things but it's yeah. not ideal for that yeah so whereas the the processors that we find in our computers are like a jack of all trades you can do everything you know might not specialize as it might not be as perfect at that one thing like the neuron is but yeah. you know it's um and that that's a loose analogy it's it's a little bit more complicated yeah, than that but of course we can we can kind of 
Well, and, and that's what makes it so fascinating is that every day we literally learn something new about mm-hmm. the way our neurons are interacting and, and uh, programming one another yeah. uh, in whatever context that looks like. Um, you mentioned as well, there was a, a recent article. I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah, totally. So uh, that's, I got really excited when I read this article. Um, they took a neural network that was trained to look at some number of frames of a, of a video and then predict what the next frames are going to look like. So it would look at, you know, the first three frames of uh, toys, uh, Toy Story and then it would try and predict what the next, you know, half a second of, of Toy Story was going to look like, um, what each pixel was going to look like. Right. Uh, and it would kind of spit out these predictions and it, it turns out that it actually became pretty accurate. Um, it was pretty good at predicting what was going to happen next based off of what just happened. And then what they did, and this is what I'm talking about in terms of taking something that's kind of tangentially related to what it was trained to do and see if that's, it shows the same kind of things that we see in humans. What they did is they looked at um, this very specific type of illusion. Uh, it's called the rotating snakes illusion. Um, this illusion is really cool because it looks like it's a bunch of wheels that are rotating. Like it's, it's kind of this weird looking disc. Um, and when you look at it out, out of the corner of your eye, it looks like it's spinning. But in truth, it's just a still image. There's nothing moving about it. Um, what the researchers did is they took this still image and they fed 10 frames of this non-moving image to this neural network and said, okay, well, what's going to come next based off of, you know, the patterns that you've learned in the previous videos that you've watched, what's going to come next? And lo and behold, the neural network predicted that this whole wheel would start to rotate the same amount that if they showed the, the neural network, a video of a propeller rotating, it would also predict that the propeller would continue to rotate. So here we see that the neural network is actually quote unquote seeing the illusion just like we are. Um, and they could show they could show that the same things that you can do to, to the image to break the illusion in humans, you can do to the n- neural network. So here we, we see a situation where the neural network was trained to see things like humans, see this movie like humans, but it wasn't trained to see the illusion like humans. And yet... It does. Yeah. And so it says something very profound about how we learn to see. And um, I think that this is a great example of, of what we can do and what we can understand by, uh, by studying these AI systems in contrast to how he, humans see. Yeah, because I mean, I think, I think most people would have assumed that the computer would see it objectively. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah computers are objective by nature so they should see this as a still frame not as a moving picture like we would as an illusion right it's a very interesting finding very cool yeah yeah so i was very excited that actually came out march 15th so it's the 21st on recording 21st so it's it's (laughs) pretty new yeah yeah yeah, it's uh in the week yeah um at the very least i highly recommend that everybody go check that out on the website because um, you don't need to read the article, but just go look at the illusion yeah. uh, and yeah. think about what it means that a computer can look at that and see the same thing that you do. See that same sort of illusory rotation. That rotation isn't actually happening and yet 
we see it anyways. Yeah. That's really Sweet. cool. Pretty cool. So I have a very serious question for you. <laughs> Will AI eventually kill us? And rule we'll, the world. And rule the world. Hypothetically speaking, AI will get to the point where it will act just like humans or it's it's approaching that. Uh, I mean, I'm coming from a lot of sci-fi, mo- watching a lot of sci-fi movies and, and that's being an interest of mine. Um, it's a fun topic to talk about. I mean, with, with friends or, or with anyone that you're talking about, coworkers or whatever, uh, the idea that AI might in fact take over the world eventually. Uh, what are your, what are your educated opinions on this topic? (laughs) I would say that it's too late. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) 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 Um, I think it's something that needs to be considered. It's important that we're having that this type of conversation all around the world, right? Um, as with any powerful technology, there's a lot of risk. Um, but there's also a lot of potential for benefit. Mm. Um, imagine that we could build an AI system that could effectively coordinate all resource distribution around the world, right? We poverty would cease to exist. Right. We, could, we could distribute resources so that everybody gets the exact same amount all the time. I mean, there's a lot of things that AI can accomplish that are just not feasible from kind of a, a human cooperation perspective. Yeah. Um, that said, there's also a lot of potential for mis- misuse and abuse. There's also a lot of potential for unintended consequences. Well, what happens when we what happens when we enable or we provide uh, artificial intelligence the ability to make ethical or moral decisions, and it starts making them not to our benefit? You know, like not to the benefit of. I think there's a lot. Sort, there's a the, the common know. sci-fi uh, trope is to have uh, the AI say, "I've made an executive decision." And that humans are des- des- uh, destructive by nature. I think it's like a. I think it's from the movie Alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's beneficial to get rid yeah. of humans because hum- they're humans just are so destructive terrible. by nature. I so, robot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. this is. It's not efficient. We're not saying it's wrong. We're humans are wrong. humans are destroying yeah. the world. So I am going to just just remove all the humans from Earth, kind of thing. Like that's a, such a, a scientific tr- or sci-fi trope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but or like the the Matrix, they're gonna the robots are just gonna captivate humans and use them as an energy source or whatever i think like we've been doing computers sorry so i don't know i think i want to be the first to apologize to my computer <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm sorry please don't subjugate <laughs> <Yeah>. me <laughs> to my computer overlord yeah. <laughs> the, the the reason that i think that the resource the research that i do is so important is that we need to understand the consequences of implementing the systems that we implement. And I'm doing my small part to try to further our understanding of do these things really behave the way we think they do? Mm -hmm. Are they going to in the future? I hesitate to say long-term what it's going to look like. I think that the problem we run into is that we're kind of already at the point where the cat's out of the bag. Yeah. The only way that we could go back now is for everybody on earth to agree never to do any research 
or to try and develop anything related to artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And we can't even get the countries in the world to agree where to send, you know, humanitarian aid. Yeah. yeah. So how are we going to do that? Yeah. You know, I, I think the best, the best thing we can do today is to try and understand what is going on in terms of these artificial intelligence systems to try and anticipate the impact mm. and to try and make sure that that impact far, leans far greater to the good side than the bad side. Yeah. I think that we're going to run into problems where humans are misusing artificial intelligence systems mm. long before we run into situations where artificial intelligence systems are deciding that humans need to stop existing. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Um, my bet is that if artificial intelligence is going to be the end of us, it will be because a human made it so. Yeah. Not because the artificial intelligence system itse- itself decided that that's, right. it. that's the way it should be. You know, um, we're taking a. It seems like we're taking a more cautious approach, or you want to take a more cautious approach as research develops. But I mean, I think of things like the internet or smartphones, and the impact they've had on everyday life. Yeah. Right. I mean, ideally, smartphones are only positive. Uh, only have positive impacts on people's lives. But as, as research is showing now, I mean, the impact that has on social interactions, face-to-face social interactions, your overall health, technology, is, it's, it's a boon of, of positivity, but there's also these negative effects associated with it. And I find AI is no different in the sense that there's such potential for growth and, and positive, like, influence on individuals lives but there's always going to be that curtail of negative impact that it could have on individuals lives patrick knowing that we need to be conscientious of the ways in which ai may eventually be out to get us (laughs) what are ways in which we can contact you so that we might be able to better defend ourselves (laughs) (laughs) send me an email you can send me an email at patrick j.laflam at gmail.com i give you my gmail because i like to keep you know the good conversations on that website (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, and other than that uh, you can also i guess i don't have a twitter so you can't follow me there but that's okay with that guys thank you for listening to brain buzz podcast uh it's been a pleasure we've had a really good time with patrick and uh we look forward to to having future guests on to talk about uh, more stimulating topics like this has really been a, it's been interesting we had no experience with AI or the work that you're doing Patrick so it's been a really eye-opening podcast and I hope it's been the same for for all our listeners uh, so thanks again for having us on or thanks for thanks for coming on Patrick thanks for having me on <laughs> to my show <laughs> thank you for that well, thank you for having me on <laughs> I guess it's your show right? <laughs> it, it's been well, really fun no. uh, I'm just kidding <laughs> it's debatable this yeah. show is. you're just you're know. doing I, so I, good I've said welcome yeah. like, uh, <laughs> welcome I'm, to your yeah. show I'm well, very threatened by, by Patrick's <laughs> introductions um, it, Again, you guys can you guys can catch us on Google Play, on iTunes. You can catch us on Facebook or Twitter at Brain Buzz Podcast or uh, through email at brainbuzzpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we really appreciate any feedback that you guys can give. Uh, if you guys want, if you guys are interested in any research areas that you want us to kind of get on the show, let us know. We, we'd love to, to get your feedback and see what you guys are interested in hearing. Um, we're really just flying by the seat of our pants right now, and it's really... 
uh it's been a fun experience it's been hard uh but it's been fun We're, we've been enjoying a lot of our all of our guests and uh and we hope you guys have been enjoying them as well uh so with that uh let's end it it's been a, it's been a great show thanks again for listening and uh cheers 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 Start over. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> that was your brain break. That's all you guys said. Brain yeah. broke. You mean? Yeah. It, um, <laughs> some people. One person told me my computer's like, or my brain's like a computer, but it's running with Windows Vista. <laughs> <laughs> Ding. A joke Anybody was delivered that, like yeah. it was on Windows Vista. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Anybody that's used Windows Vista as a family computer knows uh with that we'll end it there we'll say good night thank you for listening uh until next time we are drake <laughs> i'm kyle <laughs> and i'm patrick excellent okay <laughs> where is the direction on this sign hey. off <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> don't worry i got you i, I need another beer no i'll be right back yeah <laughs> Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Man, it started off all right, <laughs> then it wavered, and then it just—it no, was good. It was good. Stuff. It was good. I liked it. I liked it. <laughs>